here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Today, we're going to be talking about the individual mandate, which is a very wonky policy term for the requirement that you buy uh, health care, which was included in the Affordable Care Act. Um, now, to me, like the individual mandate is one of the most bizarre and like fascinating windows onto American politics, which will will explain like the strangeness and bizarreness of it. Um, but it's also like timely uh, because of two big things. Like there's basically two major events happening in politics right now, right? There's the Supreme Court nomination where the Supreme Court could potentially be tipped way to the right. And then we have this, uh, you may have heard we have an election coming up. Um, breaking news, uh, news alert, there's an election coming up. <laughs> Um, and the mandate ties into both of these things because of course, a lot of people are wondering, will this new conservative court overturn the Affordable Care Act? And it turns out the individual mandate is like at the center of that legal case. Um, and then there's also the issue of what happens if Democrats retake Congress and the presidency? Um, what are they going to do? Because essentially the mandate was eliminated um, or they pulled the teeth out of it a couple of years ago uh, when there was still a Republican Congress. And, you know, are Democrats going to reinstate it? What's going to happen? Is it a good or a bad thing? Um, let's get into it. Stephanie, you want to introduce our guest? Sure. So we're welcoming to the podcast today uh, Egan Kemp, our old friend Egan, who is the healthcare policy advocate at Public Citizen. Happy Halloween, Egan. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. Can we get you a better, like, sexier title than healthcare? I know. Policy? <laughs> You've been healthcare working policy. there for so long. Yeah, maybe healthcare policy champion or something. Uh -huh. like, like an upgrade. <laughs> We're gonna work on that. We're yeah, that. exactly. So, my first question on this episode about the individual mandate is: What the hell is an individual <laughs> mandate? And specifically, how is it different from a tax? Yeah. So, an individual mandate, at its most basic, is the idea that you have to have health insurance. And if you don't have health insurance, there's some sort of penalty. And so it's, it's different from a tax in that it's, it's uh, what you would end up paying if you didn't actually get health insurance. So if you have a health insurance, you know, you're paying for whatever your health insurance is. But if you don't have any health insurance, then it's uh, whatever the tax is, which is generally going to be less than the cost of your health insurance. But it means you're also not getting anything and you don't actually have health insurance coverage. Yeah, best of both worlds, really, is being <laughs> uninsured and then being fined on top of it. Um, so a, a lot of people who have been you know, following this at all, the Affordable Care Act, may know that at this moment, in general, the Republican Party is opposed to the individual mandate, considers that this tax, this requirement to buy insurance is like an infringement on our personal liberties. Um, and in general, the Democratic Party has been in favor of it, um, saying it's, you know, what makes the Affordable Care Act work, its personal responsibility, yada, yada, yada. But it was not always so. Um, is the, can you give us a little bit of like, where did this idea come from? How long has it been kicking around for? Yeah, so it, it, an individual mandate is is sort of a, a conservative way of, of getting people health care. I mean, as you know, we're on the Medicare for All health care now. 
that's a much more sort of progressive, it guarantees access uh, to healthcare for folks. Whereas uh, just an individual mandate, really the idea there is that you want people to have um, health insurance and insurers are scared that if folks wait until they're sick and then just buy coverage, that means that they're only going to get, the insurers are only going to make money while people are sick, which means they're actually going to have to pay out more. And so they want them to be paying all those premiums ahead of time so that they're making their, their, their profits as they go. We would hate for insurers not to make enough <laughs> profits. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's, it's something that appealed, has appealed to Republicans and Democrats over the years. And uh, the health insurance industry gives pretty, uh, pretty heavy handily to, to both. Uh, and so it's not, it's not surprising that both parties at different times would, would be in favor of it. Yeah, so we're from Massachusetts, uh, ground zero for Obamacare, actually, as you may know. <laughs> uh, the first real-life iteration of Obamacare was, of course, the Massachusetts health reform, uh, which was passed on sort of a bipartisan basis under a Republican governor, Mitt Romney, who pioneered the idea under what is sort of a Democratic leadership. If you're familiar with Massachusetts state politics, you know that it's Democrat is used lightly here. Um, President Bush, of course, also expressed really strong support for the idea of a mandate uh, coupled with a marketplace. So if you think about the ACA as being the three legs, two of those legs, a marketplace for healthcare, and then the idea of the mandate are like major conservative ideas right there. Um, and then, you know, Obama, you know, running for the Democratic primary he, to beat John Edwards and Hillary Clinton, he probably thought he needed to be at least a little bit to the left of the Republican governor, you know, Romney's healthcare policy. Um, although both Clinton and Edwards endorsed the individual mandate in the primary. Uh, so they were apparently cool with running on you know, Republican policy. Um, I guess the question is, how did the Democratic solution, you know, we have two of the three major candidates in the 2008 primary running on a Republican health reform, like how did that democratic solution uh, become like personal responsibility? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that sort of speaks to some of the challenges that I think we're going to face under a potential Biden administration. The idea that <clears throat> if you uh, if you have sort of a national health care system, a Medicare for all, that's much easier for folks to sort of get their heads around. But if you have right now, our system is sort of based on various fragments. There's, you know, your basic private health care, there's Medicare for seniors, there's Medicaid for low income folks. Uh, and so this, it, it felt, it seemed like Democrats were less afraid of sort of tinkering with the system, trying to make some way, way of expanding coverage. They were more afraid of sort of taking on, uh, you know, insurers and hospitals directly. And so they figured that the easiest way out was to sort of take this personal responsibility option, try to tack on a new private insurance system and hope that it ended up covering people. As we saw, there were some coverage gains, but the gaps in the system meant may, way too many people were still falling through. And that makes so much sense that they weren't trying to placate Republicans since zero Republicans voted for the ACA, but it was actually the industry that they, you know, were acquiescing to. That's right. Yeah, the industry <clears throat> across the healthcare system, and I still hear, you know, uh, center center and center left wonks talking about how it was such a great thing that they did to placate the industry. And I said, <laughs> and I, my response is, well, look at where we are. We're 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 having you know higher and higher costs, more and more bankruptcies. And just look at what's happening under COVID, where folks are losing their insurance at the worst possible time. We didn't fix the system. We just uh, made a broken system slightly better, but didn't, didn't 
really address the needs of the American people. Yeah. And if I could jump back to also an earlier question we had for you, which is about the difference between the mandate and taxes. Yeah. Like if you think about Medicare, you know, Medicare is paid for mostly through a payroll tax. Uh, probably uh, if you have a traditional employer, you get your pay stub and on it, it says how much is taken out of taxes. And one of the things on there along with social security is your Medicare tax. And I think it's about 2.5%, something like that for the employee side and an equal 2.5% for the employer side. And that covers you universal health care when you turn 65. So how is that uh, paying for some, for like universal health care through a tax different from like mandating that people buy health insurance and pay for a premium? Yeah, it's, it's hugely different. Um, <clears throat> just in terms of what people end up paying as a percentage of income, it's, it's uh, a, a huge challenge that there was recently a couple of uh, progressive economists, uh, Gabriel Saez and Emmanuel Zuckman, that were looking at this and highlighted that middle-class families are spending tens of thousands of dollars on healthcare, and it's sort of a hidden tax. So even if they have their healthcare through their job, they might think that they're only paying you know, two-thirds uh, of their insurance or even a third of their insurance but they also have to factor in lost wages, that any money that your employer is also contributing, you would be getting that under a Medicare for all system. And that's one of the things that makes it so frustrating is that some of these things that we take for granted as Americans, that we end up paying much more uh, than comparably wealthy countries, both as a national system and individually, uh, depending on uh, versus if you had prog progressive taxation as the base. Yeah, there's definitely the issue that, I mean, even for the middle class, people are still really exposed to high healthcare costs. And then on top of that, there's just the fundamental inequity of the system. I mean, um, I, you know, because I don't qual qualify for a subsidy, um, I pay just as much for my healthcare premium as, you know, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. <laughs> and I think that that in itself is... <laughs> is a major problem because even, you know, I'm spending a lot more of my percentage as a percentage of my income uh, than, than somebody who's much wealthier than I am. And that's actually a part of the reason why the middle class actually has um, such high healthcare costs because the rich aren't carrying their weight. Um, and that's why, and that's why I think, you know, the progressive financing of single payer is sort of something that we don't really like talk about that much as being a benefit of it. It's more like, oh, let's get everybody covered, which is of course <laughs> the main goal of a single payer and also equity in terms of the comprehensiveness of coverage, but also in terms of the financing system. Um, we are the only country that finances healthcare this regressively and puts it, this puts it that much on the back of middle-class and, and working-class people. Yeah, and it's something that, you know, studies <clears throat> on Medicare for All continue to show that, you know, whether it was uh, the RAND study that New York did uh, or, or sort of national level studies, when you take a look at sort of the curve, all of a sudden uh, under Medicare for All, under progressive taxation, middle class families would be paying less than they do now uh, compared to what they're playing, paying in premiums if they're lucky enough to even have uh, health care right now, whereas it was only the wealthy that would end up actually uh, paying more than they currently do. Uh, and it's because they would be finally paying their sh fair share and you would finally have taxes uh, where corporations are paying their fair share. I mean, uh, Walmart alone depends on the Medicaid system to keep their workers healthy. And that's one of the reasons they are able to pay them so poorly. Uh, because they want to, and and you'll even have you even hear stories of uh, Walmart workers giving up raises because they're fear that they would lose uh, access to Medicaid and then not be able to afford the coverage uh, that they might have access to. Yep, and um, I one one more thing I would highlight that is 
is so important, the difference between uh, a public tax and a mandate. Um, when you have, when you think about like your Medicare taxes, for example, when was the last time your Medicare taxes went up? <laughs> I, I think it went up like once in the last 20 years or something like that. And it wasn't much. Um, and obviously there's public accountability, right? That has to be a congressional decision to change the rate you pay into Medicare system. Um, but how often does your private premium goes up and who decides, right? Um, so to me, the mandate in a way is like, it's sort of like the government outsourcing the power of taxation to private corporations. It's sort of like, you have to pay this premium. How much do you have to pay? Well, ask this healthcare company over here, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, that's what we see year after year. Premiums go up. At the same time, your, nar- your networks are narrowing, your co-pays uh, are going up, your deductibles are getting higher. And, and it's, it's more and more challenging to, you know, and we hear the same from businesses saying that, you know, what they used to pay, you know, even 10, 15 years ago uh, for a plan, you know, it was much easier to afford and there were better plans. Now it's continually more difficult to afford sure. and for worse coverage. So, Egan, um, just to bring it to this ACA lawsuit, which, you know, the ACA is in the courts again, and again, the issue uh, is over the individual mandate. So in the original Supreme Court ruling on the ACA, Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion that was um, that the mandate that the mandate is constitutional. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what this new lawsuit is about and like, why do we care about it, given the court's new composition? Yeah, it's it's an important question, and and it, and it also goes back to the question that Ben had: is before it was ruled constitutional because the the mandate was considered a tax, so it was just sort of one more type of tax that the the federal government could levy uh, because folks uh, if folks didn't have insurance. And so what then happened was uh, in in 2017 the GOP passed their Tax Scam Act, which is officially known as the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but we all know it was just a scam to allow wealthy people to pay less in taxes. Um, And so they zeroed out the individual mandate. They didn't repeal the mandate. They didn't repeal sort of broader ACA stuff. They just zeroed that out. And so now the question is, where there is no longer sort of that taxation piece, the, 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 the penalty itself is zero, does that mean the rest of the law is now unconstitutional. And some lower courts have said yes, other ones have said no, and that's how it's reached the the Supreme Court. Um, And it's also one of those strange cases where the the players involved have switched. At one point, the federal government was defending it, but then they gave up on it. And so now it's the US House of Representatives, the Democrats, uh, as well as a number of Democratic state AGs. And that's why the name is now Texas versus California. And so what, um, you know, everyone's now looking at the Supreme Court composition. Is this likely to come up again? Is this, is this court, is this case kind of working its way through the courts and is likely to end up at the Supreme Court? Or what are people worried about, about this? Yeah, so actually the the oral arguments for this begin uh, November 10th, right after oh, the God. election. <laughs> And 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 back, back Can I breathe? I, yeah, no, it's it's going to be rough. And back before the passing of RBG, the the assumption was that they, uh, you know, would push it until the next term. There was even some discussion originally that they were going to have the hearings earlier, uh, and then just sort of not have deli- de- delivered a decision um, by the election. Because Roberts is acutely aware that there's going to be a lot of scrutiny around this decision, uh, and doesn't want the 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 court to look uh, sort of 
out of place or uh, out of step uh, in, in, as he's tried to sort of, you know, they have a number of conservative uh, decisions, but then they also have ones that are surprisingly uh, centrist or where they're not going as far as we would anticipate. But now, <laughs> since uh, today, uh, Amy Comey Barrett's likely to be mm-hmm. uh, confirmed, um, all of a sudden we have a situation where that conservative majority is even stronger. Uh, and so th- this this gets to sort of a number of other issues uh, what, the, of ways that it, it could fall out, um, most of which are slightly go, range from slightly scary to absolutely terrifying. <laughs> And what's the what's the terrifying range? Is that just totally uh, overturning the Affordable Care Act, or yes? Because the argument, right, is that the individual mandate is 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 uh, not legal, or uh, it, it, the second one revolved around them not enforcing it, right, or something like that. Yeah. What's, so, what's the argument to repeal it, and what's the worst case scenario that happens? Yeah. So so where we are now, it it comes down to sort of a a, a technical legal term called severability, and yeah, so what's like- se- <laughs> it is it is a lot of fun. And so <laughs> the basic idea there is can you rule certain parts of a law unconstitutional without making the entire law unconstitutional? And so the basic idea that the court has often used uh, is what was the congressional intent? So would Congress have preferred to have the law continue to exist absent the part that they strike down, so in this case, the individual mandate, or does the whole law have to go? This is an area where uh, both Kavanaugh and Roberts have issued some rulings on severability that indicate they might be willing to do something like this for the individual mandate. So uh, sort of best case scenario of the bad cases is they just rule the individual mandate unconstitutional, but leave the rest of the law alone. Uh, a sort of slightly worse uh, outcome was they, you know, declare it uh, the the individual mandate unconstitution as well as uh, part other parts of the ACA, including uh, some aspects of the of the marketplaces, uh, including some subsidies, and then the, obviously the most uh, terrifying in terms of just the amount of implications it would have would be just declaring the entire ACA unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as you're saying this, my head is spinning, as always, with sort of the simplicity of Medicare for all, but just also on the flip side of that, like the complexity of not doing Medicare for all. Because I think that we as a society have, you know, decided the left says it just straight up that healthcare is a human right. And even if the right doesn't really want to admit it, they they sort of like respect the the borders and the new, you know, terrain that most people think that you should be able to have healthcare, even if you can't, you know, afford it, or that you should get help from the government for affording it. And so, what we're doing, you know, we're saying that healthcare is a human right. You know, all of us say it. And then to get there, instead of you know instituting a government plan, which is the only way that you can deliver a right, you know, markets can't deliver us rights. Uh, we instead decide to torture the market and the existing system, you know, with mandates, then regulations, then subsidy schemes to help it, you know, to help people afford it, to deliver, you know, basically what only the public sphere can do, you know, deliver our rights. 
Well, and I think that's one of the one of the things looking back at how the ACA was passed is they built one of the key parts of the system uh, on the private insurance system, which is the the most fundamentally flawed and most challenging to sort of justify. I mean, just look at what's happening with COVID right now. Insurance companies are making record profits at the time. This fear right now is that they're not going to. Uh, uh, meet the, what they what they call the medical loss ratio, where they have to percent eighty per, uh, spend eighty percent of the money they take in on actual care. But if they go too high, then their shareholders are like, "No, you shouldn't be giving this much care." Mm-hmm. And if you go too low, then they have to pay back money uh, to folks that were paying premiums. And and so building the, a huge chunk of the ACA on that was always going to be problematic. Whereas when you look at you know Medicare over time, uh, absent Medicare Advantage. It's very difficult to attack Medicare. Even the Trump administration, when they've threatened to, have often sort of pulled back at the last minute because they know there would be a rebellion against it. Whereas with private insurers, it's there's so many more gaps and challenges, and it's like you know pushing pushing a noodle. It's not easy to to get folks to to be as fired up in the same way. So I guess this is an interesting question, given that we have now lived two years without the individual mandate being enforced. Uh, my my memory is that it was like. It was in like December 2017. It was like Republicans had just lost all the elections in the House. They had, they knew they were losing the House, and they're like, "Oh shit, what do we pass before we lose control of the House?" And they kind of rushed through all these tax cuts you were talking about, and also zeroing out the mandate fine. Um, but you know, Democrats have been saying now for years, and this was actually part of the legal case. Well, you can't have the rest of the Affordable Care Act without the individual mandate. They're saying, well, you know, young and healthy people are going to refuse to buy private insurance. They're going to, you know, assume they'll be fine. And without the money of those young, healthy people, the premiums will go up for everyone else. um, And the whole system will collapse if you don't have this mandate. Um, What has been the actual lived experience of people, both when we had the mandate before, but then also these last two years without the mandate, but we still have everything else. We have the subsidies, we have the Medicaid expansion, all that stuff. Yeah, so far we're we're not seeing sort of the 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 death spiral that it was called before that <laughs> the idea that it would be, lead to you know lots of people dropping insurance uh, if there was no sort of mandate uh, or no penalty for the mandate. Uh, so we're not seeing that. Uh, I mean, even sort of looking back to when the mandate was happening, it was never more than sort of you know ten percent of people in any given you know county or part of the country. It was it was typically a, only less than five percent of people were actually paying the penalty in any given year. Uh, so it was already relatively small. But but the the problem was that of the folks paying the penalty, a lot of them were lower income. So there are a number of hardship exemptions, were a number of hardship exemptions, not as sort of relevant now, but you, you still have to go to either fill out paperwork or sort of understand, you know, go to the, go one of the government websites or get sort of help from one of the hotlines, but it was never particularly easy. And so the, the, the fact that it's gone away hasn't had sort of those negative effects that, that, uh, but thinking long-term, it's still, there still could be challenges there, but again, most of it is for sort of private insurers, which, you know, are are, are not feeling particularly, um, <laughs> no, one, no one's feeling for, particularly amenable to them at this point. So I don't think there's a lot of sympathy. So to recap here, Republicans invent the idea of the re- individual <laughs> mandate, uh, like the Heritage Foundation writes all these papers, uh, but they can't get it implemented anywhere until Democrats implement it in Massachusetts along with Mitt Romney. And then 
Obama in Congress, Democratic Congress, fully Democratic Congress, embrace the individual mandate. It becomes a Democratic idea that they say is necessary for the whole lot of work. The Republicans say is terrible as a violation of individual liberties. And then it gets repealed by Republicans who invented the idea the first time and nothing happens. <laughs> is that about right? <laughs> Ben, when you say it like that, it makes it sound absurd. <laughs> but that is that is right, and that's and I think that's what's so so terrifying about sort of the the series of decisions that led here. And one of the scariest things is Republicans don't know what to do next. This was their idea. This is yeah. that's why why Trump every two weeks says in two weeks he's going to have some sort of health care plan. It's why you know people inside the White House said one of the things he asked was why can't we just put everyone on Medicare? And so it's like he he doesn't understand understand you know what what's actually happening in the healthcare system and republicans aren't sure where to go next they don't have a specific plan other than repealing the aca which they just sort of see as more of a political move as opposed to a policy move well that was bleak all right well if biden wins and congress falls to the democrats uh reinstating the individual mandate is probably on the table. Um, what do you think will happen in a, in a Biden administration? Will they, will they try to reinstate the, the mandate, especially as the ranks of the uninsured continue to grow? Um, and where do we stand on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I imagine they will try to, 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 if they did it, it would be as part of some sort of, you know, ACA 2.0 package or sort of COVID uh, package where there's sort of a number of tweaks. Uh, some things that we might end up liking is, you know, uh, higher subsidies for folks that right now struggle, uh, either uh, requirements to, to, for states to cover uh, folks through Medicaid in a way that they're not required to do so now. Um, or, uh, but, but a mandate is, I, I think, will be at least part of the consideration. At this point, now that we are seeing that it's not having as big of an effect, I think there's much more of a debate to be had about whether, you know, who we're protecting with an individual mandate, yeah. are death spirals real, and why aren't we actually pushing for a healthcare system that guarantees people have access to the healthcare they need as opposed to paying for, for healthcare that's really only lining the pockets of insurance, insurance companies. Uh, and I think we're in a much stronger position to have that debate. I mean, we're seeing, you know, folks lose their jobs. Uh, you know, one of the main only things that's come up uh, from Congress is using COBRA uh, and paying a ton of money to, to have limited coverage as opposed to using, you know, one of the plans that uh, Senator Sanders put out, the Healthcare Emergency Guarantee Act, or a plan uh, by Representative Jayapal, Medicare Crisis Program Act, both of which would ensure coverage much more compre comprehensively and much more cheaply than just doing COBRA alone. Is there appetite among Democrats to get the re uh, the individual mandate back up? Not on its own. I mean, I think they. I think a lot of people are still amenable to the arguments uh, made that that you know you could have a worse uh, what they call a risk pool over time. Where uh, I think. A number of I've heard, you know, some health policy folks say that people just don't know that the individual mandate's gone, um, and so are maybe keeping health insurance when they don't necessarily need to. Uh, but you know, as we're discussing sort of what the future of healthcare is, how much political capital should be spent uh, just redoing things that didn't end up closing the gap as much as we would have liked, as opposed to things that would really close the gap or improve healthcare for the American people. Well, that's a relief. Yeah, well, it is. It's a tough time to be a resident in America uh, with 
coronavirus like spiraling out of control, but it appears to be a great time to be an insurance company because imagine selling a product where the government requires people to buy your product. Like you could be like a car manufacturer and government requires people to buy your car. I mean, I can't think of any other area of life where this kind of happens where it's like a linking of public requirements with private products and private uh, merchandise and profits. Um, so it's tough. And I, I was going to, I wanted to kind of close the conversation with this international perspective also, because uh, a lot of things we hear, I lived through this whole thing in Massachusetts where they were first debating, putting it in place and they did it. Um, and a lot of people were pointing to like Switzerland and Netherlands and they're like, oh yeah, this is how some countries achieve universal healthcare. Um, I'm going to ask, because I know Stephanie's done a lot of research on this also, but Egan first and then Stephanie, true or false, mm -hmm. is this a pathway to universal healthcare to just keep that mandate, make it really strong, and then somehow make it more affordable for people to buy private insurance? It is a pathway, but it's not the right pathway. <laughs> Good, succinct answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, sure. I mean, I'll, I'll go on a little bit longer, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, there are a couple of countries that have tried this route, notably uh, Netherlands, the Netherlands and Switzerland. Um, and Switzerland actually has the most privatized where, you know, most of the financing of the insurance system is based off of premiums. Whereas in the Netherlands, it's like kind of a mix. But essentially in Switzerland, what they're finding now is, is that the Swiss and actually even the WHO and international observers are um, questioning whether Switzerland has a universal healthcare system anymore because so many people have fallen through the cracks. They've, you know, stopped paying their premiums or, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and, and they've just dropped out of the system altogether uh, to such an alarming percentage that they may not actually constitute a universal healthcare system anymore. Um, and, and so I think that, and, and of course, not only is it not universal, but it's also the most regressively financed healthcare system in all of Europe, the Swiss have, but it's all Switzerland. It's like a haven for rich people. So, you know, send your money to Switzerland, not, not <laughs> yeah. your body, keep your body in another <laughs> European country. <laughs> well, and that's, I mean, it, it, you look at those two countries and, and the Netherlands had in, in recent years had more of a move to privatize aspects of their healthcare system. And there's now a backlash against it where people want to go back in the public direction because as they privatize more, their healthcare system has, has costed more, and has led to more unmet need. And Switzerland was already among European countries the most expensive, and as you pointed out, the one that had sort of the least universal coverage. I mean, it's sort of, you look at why Medicare for All is so popular, the only universal coverage system in America that sort of, uh, that we see work in similar ways to European countries is Medicare, where seniors have universal coverage. And once people hit 65, all of a sudden their health improves uh, and they start, start moving towards some of their European uh, cohort. But uh, up until 65, it's sort of a wild, wild west in the U.S. It really varies sort of where you live, you know, your access, what your job is uh, in a way that you just don't see that level of unmet need in other uh, high income countries. Yeah. And I think uh, what I've learned from Stephanie is that in the Netherlands, um, the mandate, you're only paying a very small portion of the, the actual cost of your care as a premium. So people, I think, think maybe that they're paying for their whole health care with like a mandated premium. They literally think that their health care costs 120 euro a month. Right. <laughs> but the rest of it is paid for through taxes. So 
Um, really, there is no fully universal system, I think, that's built on mandates and private health insurance, for-profit insurance. Definitely, there's no for-profit in these countries. Um, so you do need something with a public taxation system and universal entitlement to really get to healthcare as a right and not to have healthcare costs like ruining the rest of our economy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us, Egan. Um, have a great one, y'all. We're looking forward to the yes. next one in a couple of weeks. Happy Halloween. Thanks, Egan. Thanks for having me. Bye, Bye guys. Bye.